I've been excited, nervous, but excited to teach this passage of Scripture as we're working our way through this study of John where we're having Christ being the light shining into the darkness of our world, of our hearts. This light in the darkness concept with John, it's what the torch is from. This light coming into the darkness, Christ coming into our world. And what we and how we respond to Christ coming into our world. And so this is where we are. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse uh, or chapter uh, 6 of John. So go ahead and grab a Bible, turn there, John chapter 6. This is, I don't know, week... 20, maybe, maybe week 21 here in John, and we're in John chapter 6, again, for probably the third or fourth week. It's a thick, thick, thick chapter. So here we go. I'm going to read verses 35 through 40 to set a little bit of context. Then we're going to be looking in detail 41 through 50. We're going to be spending most of our time on verse 44. Okay, wait till we get there. Hold Hold on. All right, let's start in 35. All right, here we go. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you, I say that you have, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never Cast out, turn away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Speaking of the Father. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Here's our passage for today. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he is who is from God. He has seen the Father. Of course, endorsing himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness And they died. Speaking of the manna from heaven that Moses prayed for, gave thanks for, and they ate for 40 years, hundreds of thousands of people. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the world is my flesh. Wow. 
This is big. This is a lot. Somebody sent me a text. Uh, one of you sent me a text late last night saying, I'm praying for you with the text tomorrow. Because tomorrow's text is what changed my worldview and taught me, the gist was that, that gave me hope in God and, and, and this sort of thing. I can't remember the text exactly. But I do remember specifically being in there that changed my worldview. This is important. I'm not saying that because I'm trying to convince you. I mean, I'm, I'm like you. For me to say something's important is honestly in, insulting you. I'm saying it's important because Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is important when he says stuff like that. This is a big deal. Okay? So let's pray and ask Jesus to stand forth to be seen and ask the Holy Spirit to come in and work in our hearts so that this truth will find a little picture analogy, the fertile soil, so that the seed of the gospel will take root and produce fruit. Okay? Let's pray and ask him to do this for us because we can't, as we'll see. Jesus, you've heard this. You've, you've heard what I've just said. So, Spirit, would you come and help us? As Pastor Jacob read at the very beginning, we are dead. At best, we are robotic followers of Satan, sin, and death. But, Lord, there is hope. If you get involved, we have hope. So, Father, work in us through the preaching of your word. Pull us to yourself. Teach us, Father. Reveal our arrogance, our pride. Reveal, Lord, our fear. Reveal the control issues that we have. Reveal our sin. And save us from Satan, hell, the grave, sin, death. Save us. Change us today through this text. Just like my friend, would you give us a new perspective, a new worldview as it were. Because of our time today. Jesus, we really need you. Teach us. May we feast on you and you alone. In Christ's name, I ask these things. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to try to set up some context, some parameters as we move forward, okay? This crowd follows Jesus. Jesus has compassion on this crowd. He serves them, heals them, performs miracles all day long. Then he, he multiplies a few fish and some bread to feed thousands and thousands of people. Anywhere between fifteen and 25,000 roughly, and I could be off by five or 6,000, but it doesn't matter. It's a lot of people from two fish and five loaves. Thousands. And they had leftovers. So then the people were following him, but only for what he could do for them physically, temporally, materialistically. Their eyes were physically on their bellies. We want another meal. So the next day they find Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum. And this is where we have this sermon 
that we're working on today. Jesus is giving us this discourse, this sermon of himself being the bread, the satisfier of all life. He says, I am the bread of life. Just as bread satisfies the hunger of the body, I am here to satisfy the hunger of your soul, your quest for meaning, for significance, for hope in eternity. I'm here so you can feast on this. I'm here to fulfill you big time, eternally, ultimately. He completely satisfies human need from a spiritual standpoint. You see, the day before Jesus, the day before this, Jesus satisfies the crowd's hunger. Now today they're back for more. And they talk to him about being like Moses, how Moses gave a sign and fed them for 40 years. And so basically they're saying, hey, if you're going to be anything like Moses, you need to do more than a meal. He fed hundreds of thousands daily for 40 years. What's new today, Jesus? Come on, let's do it. Meal number two. Hit us. Let's go. We need it. They want Jesus, but they only want what he can give physically. And Jesus essentially responds this way. You don't need physical food. Yeah, that's good. We're going to eat, okay? Jesus is for that. He's for food. But he's saying, you need more than that. You need spiritual food. You need me. This is satisfaction. And you can find it nowhere else. You can find meals somewhere else. You can find meals outside of me. But not true food. Not ultimate food. Not eternal food. I am, as we'll learn later in John 14, 6, when we get there, whenever we get there, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. You can find meals somewhere else. You can't find eternal life and hope, true life, outside of me. That's why I'm here. That's why I came down from my Father. Okay, that's the point. So let's look in verse 41. I want to go verse by verse as quickly as I can, and then I want to end with some just concluding thoughts, specifically on verse 44. Okay? So the Jews grumbled about Jesus because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. You see, this unbelief here in Christ is why they failed to see Jesus as who he was. They were blinded, as it were, by their own disbelief. You simply can't feed those who aren't aware of their hunger. They didn't see it. They didn't get what Jesus was saying. He was talking about the spiritual, but they failed to see it. They only focused on the physical. The crowd is angry because of two things. One, Jesus claimed to be the bread of life. That doesn't help me. They're looking at him like... I mean, even if we cooked you over an open fire right now, that's not going to, that's gross, but that's not going to like feed more than a few people. And I'd rather go eat something else like this. I don't get it. They only saw the physical. So they were mad because he said he was the bread of life and not this magic bread that he was going to provide for the rest of their lives. Second reason why they're angry and mad is because he claimed to have come down from heaven. Now he's just crazy. Because their logic, as we'll see, is they know his parents come from heaven. Come on. So here is where Galilee, Capernaum and Galilee begins to turn against Jesus. Remember, Jerusalem is already 
upset, to say the least, about Jesus. And it's not Jesus' his miracles or his works that he's performed that they have a problem with. They like those. They just do not like the definitive claims that he makes about himself being God and from God and being the only way to God. They don't like that. That's their problem. The problem isn't in his miracle. It's in his teaching. We don't like that you say that you are from God and that you are with God and you are of God, that you are the son of God. We don't like that. And they definitely don't like the demands that he makes on their lives. As he calls them to change. As he calls them to repentance. They don't like this. You see, they don't think that they need spiritual help. They don't need to repent. They're good enough. This is what their thinking is. So who's this man claiming to be God, come from heaven, asking us to change? Bogus. And here's our logic, verse 41. They said, is this not the, this Jesus, the son of Joseph? And by the way, he would be dead at this point. Joseph, his father's past. Whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? I know Jesus. This is Joe's boy. He didn't come from heaven. He's from Nazareth. Perfect logic. Notice that they understood his claims. They were aware that what Christ was talking about forced him into deity. They understand that they understood that Christ was trying to convince them and teach them that he was in fact deity. And they're wrestling with this. They're not removed from this. The claims of Jesus and the personal perceptions of the crowd produces this collision of the claims of Christ and the, and the personal perceptions of the crowd collide and produce this growing opposition. And it begins to explode from here. And I believe, and Scripture teaches this, this passage teaches this, that this is even happening now in this room. Your personal perception and the truth of who Jesus is colliding right now. This is why we pray. This is why I prayed and asked Jesus and the Holy Spirit to help us. Because as we see this collision, we're just like, okay, how can I just figure this out? How, how do I just file this away? Like, where do I put it? Where do I process, how do I process it so I can get on out of here? Because this isn't really ultimate to me. I just want to figure it out and move on. You see, there's no neutral ground. We're either going to see these two things collide and embrace Jesus as God and change our perception... Or we're going to push him away and reject him further away into our darkness. Same thing in this crowd, same thing in this crowd. Same thing in your heart right now. I pray that God has this collision in your heart and renders it to worship his son. This is my prayer. This is what you need. So I pray it for you. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. What if they would have responded this way? Okay, Jesus, we see your power. What's your purpose in coming? That would have changed everything. 
but instead they grumble. Jesus is standing before them and they're grumbling together. It's like with each other, not Jesus. They're, they're talking, but they're not talking with the one who has the answers. They'd rather grumble back here amongst themselves. I think that's strange. So he says, do not grumble among yourselves. And then he gives us a truth that is connected to why they shouldn't grumble. It's interesting. Follow me here. This is our main verse. No one can come to me, Jesus says, no one can come to me, Jesus, unless the Father who sent me into the world, John 3, 16, for God so the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave, it's, it's Christmas, it's what we celebrate Christmas, Christ coming to the world. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. Books, thousands of books have been written on this truth. Thousands. Months we could spend here. If not years we could spend here. You see, a couple of side notes. The lost sheep doesn't look for the shepherd. The lost sheep isn't aware that he's lost. We are considered and regarded as sheep all throughout Scripture. Sheep are in a herd together, but they only go with a shepherd unless they are in a confined space, keeping them from wandering because they will wander from their provision. They will wander from their protector, from their shepherd. And when one wanders away, one never says, hmm, I need to go on a search to find my shepherd today. You always see, especially throughout scripture, the shepherd is the one who leaves the 99 and goes to the lost sheep and finds him. Another perspective. You can't find God. That would imply that he is lost. He finds you. You are lost. No one with an unchanged mind and heart will ever choose to pursue Jesus. It is impossible. Again, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. This is what is meant by the theological teaching of total depravity. Meaning that no one left alone, apart from God, apart from God's divine intervention, would ever choose Jesus. Much has been said about man's free will in comparison to God's sovereignty and control. Man has no free will. The Bible doesn't teach it. The only time free will is addressed is in the Old Testament referring to offerings, not the heart of the person towards God. You see, here's the thing with free will. We're either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. You're never free. You're either under the bondage 
of sin or you're under the care and overseeing and protecting, guiding arm and hand of Christ. So much has been said to defend free will. I used to be such a proponent of free will. I preached it. I know what it's like to understand and try to persuade free will and God's sovereignty. We must first understand that we are always under another power over us. Sin or Jesus. The fact is that we must be changed by God. Then we will desire him. Then we will pursue him. Then we will want him. Then we will long for him. Until then, we will never be drawn to Jesus. God must act on our behalf. He must draw us. And praise the Lord, he loves to do this. He says, we'll raise him up at the last day. This is a promise that we will never be outside of hope. We are safe with him. We are guaranteed a resurrection to life. God is totally responsible for our salvation. And yet, we are responsible to respond. How do these work together exactly? If I were to tell you now, you would think I was crazy. Because I don't know. I don't know how these things work together. There's some things that are, believe it or not, beyond us. And known perfectly by God. Believe it or not, we don't know everything. And on those things, like sovereignty of God and man's responsibility, we must only obey and just trust Jesus. Just because we can't see exactly how it works out, I don't think it gives us permission to say, oh, it's dumb, rubbish. And so we go hard one way. Man's responsible. He tells God what to do. He surprises God by his actions because God doesn't know what he's going to do. Weird. Or we go over here where God is absolutely sovereign and man has no responsibility. You don't see that in Scripture. That's why we're charged so often to repent, turn from your sin, run to Christ. Today is the day of salvation. We are responsible. You don't see absolute sovereignty and no absolute, no human responsibility. You don't see that. We must trust. Either way, on either extreme. I think you get bitter, angry, and arrogant. Is God, is God sovereign? Yes. Is man responsible? Yes. Do those conflict? In my mind, not to God. He's got it all figured out. Trust, obey, faith. Blind faith? Sure, you want to call it that. It's faith. Then we're going to go back to that. We're going to come back, okay? Let's finish the passage. Let's look in verse 45. So he's pointing out here that they're prophets who they, oh man, they respected their Old Testament prophets. He uses their prophets here to help them. Basically saying that their prophets were taught by God, okay? So then why are you struggling that you must be drawn by God? If God influenced your teachers, then why are you upset that God's drawing certain ones? God's the one who's over your teachers and teaching. He's the one over the drawing, okay? So anyway, he says, verse 45, it is written in the prophets. Their ears would perk up and be like, okay. And this is recording at least five other 
Old Testament prophecies. And they will all be taught by God. Every man, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone, every man who has heard and learned, specifically here, from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. Speaking of himself, he has seen the Father. It's interesting here, a side note, that Jesus here teaches that for those who say they've had a vision or a dream and seen God, I don't know if I believe that. I believe Jesus when he says, not that anyone has seen the Father except, very exclusive, he who is from God, speaking of himself, he has seen the Father. Just a little side note. Interesting. Verse 47. Truly, truly... Important. Here we go. I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. The filthiest sinner can get in on this. And he has eternal life. Not will. It's like now. You're in. Just believe. It goes back to where we were last week in our, in our passage. Oh, you want to do work? I'll tell you the work. The work of the Father is this, that you believe. That's it. Believe eternal life. What a promise. This puts so many fears that I have about eternity and about death to rest. Fear death? Do you fear what's going to happen in eternity? Listen. Whoever believes, implied here, in Christ has eternal life. Death is a door. It's not an end. There's life after death. It's not an end. This is hope. 48, big verse. I am the bread of life. He says it at least five times. He doesn't want them to miss it. But so many miss it. Verse 49. Your fathers, okay, remember they quoted Moses? Moses did this, what are you going to do? Oh, he comes back to Moses. Oh, your hero, Moses? Yeah, here we go. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Moses, oh yeah, yeah, he died. And the bread that he ate and that bread that he gave didn't sustain them. You see, it wasn't spiritual. It was only physical. It was only natural. The spiritual bread that I am saying that I am is much more significant forever. Not just for a few hours in your belly. The point of the bread in the Old Testament was not physical provision. It helped physically. That wasn't the point of the bread given to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. The point was to God spiritually providing for them. He was protecting them. God is in control. That's the point. The point of multiplying bread yesterday for you guys was not physical fullness so you'd come back and develop this dependency thing on your stomach being filled. It was pointing to me providing your soul's satisfaction. I set that up yesterday to fill your belly so you'd come back today so I could tell you you need more concern over your belly. You need to be concerned about your soul and I'm here to satisfy that just like I did yesterday in your belly. 
forever in your soul. That's me. I'm the bread. So later you'll see, and we'll hit it next week. They're like, so we're supposed to eat his flesh? They're so stuck on the physical. So stuck. Collision. Perception. Christ's teaching. We're supposed to eat him? We'll get it. My prayer is that we see. My prayer is that not you just that you just try to see. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit helps you see. Verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. This bread, Jesus, will sustain throughout life and throughout all eternity. He is absolutely sufficient. He said in John 10:10, 10, 10, I have come that you might have life. He is the source of life, the beginning of life. Christ, he satisfies. Okay, let's look back at verse 44. Let's dig here just a little bit. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then I will raise him up on the last day. There's two possible meanings. There's two ways of understanding. I believe there's probably more than that. But there's two central ways of understanding this passage. Chapter 6 of John, verse 44. The first one is this. No one can come to Jesus unless God draws them. God draws everyone, but only some come. So God's drawing everyone isn't the decisive Reason, the deciding factor that they come. It simply makes coming a possibility. So those who come provide the decisive impulse for them coming to Jesus. Those who do not come to Jesus make a decisive decision not to come. It's meaning one. It could mean this. The second truth, and this is what I believe, is this. No one can come unless God draws them. And all those who he draws will come to the Son, Jesus. Because his drawing of them is perfectly executed. Clearly, then, it, he isn't drawing everyone, at least not in the exact same way. So what does he mean by this? This is where we're going. I believe that Jesus wants us to know that God's drawing is the decisive move and factor in our salvation. This is absolutely, totally not in conflict with you coming to Jesus freely. No one comes to Jesus who hasn't chosen to. But all those who do choose come to Jesus, they're drawn by God to do so. He's the reason why any come. Even though there are hundreds of other passages throughout Scripture, I will only use the immediate context in book of John here to, to build my case, I guess. Okay? So I believe there's four takeaways from this passage and from the other portions of John that I want us to look at. Let's look at John 6, 37, same chapter. We just looked at it a couple weeks or last week. 
John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives will come to me. This giving is the same thing as the drawing in terms of the salvation. All that the Father gives are all that those are drawn to him. Look at John chapter 6, verses 64 and 65. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Speaking of, specifically Judas. And he said, this is why I told you that one can come, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. No one can come to me. Unless it is granted him by the Father. Here Jesus explicitly reverts back to verse 44. He explains why there's a betrayer who's Judas. Or any other unbeliever. He says some of you do not believe. And Jesus knew from the beginning those who would believe. This is why I told you verse 44. That only those who come are those who are drawn. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That's why there's a Judas. God did not draw him. So this give to the son is the drawing of the father, is the granting of the, from, from the father to the son, all pointing to the saving work of God on our behalf. Universalism here is proven bogus. What do you do with Judas? So universalism's out. Third takeaway, let's look at John eight forty seven. Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Here's how it plays out. Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. You do not hear them, truly hear them because you are not of God. Here's how it's drawn together. This hearing, this being drawn, this being granted, this being given to him, all points to the saving work of God on your behalf. If you are of God, you hear. If you are given, you come. If you are drawn, you come to Jesus. Fourth passage. It's getting pretty deep. Let's look at John 10. Find John 10, please. 26 through 30. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able, just in case you missed it the first time, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. My sheep hear. I know them and they follow me. Listen carefully. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. He said it right there. 
It's not the other way around. Follow me. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. He doesn't say, you are not part of my flock because you do not believe. He says, you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. The sheep will hear. If you are his, you will hear. All that the Father gives me will come. All that the Father draws will come. We come freely without restraint. If we do not, it's not faith. See Him as Lord, Savior, bread, sufficient. This is the freest you'll ever be. At salvation, He opens your heart and makes you rational for the very first time in your life. All this is by God's sovereign grace. We are all so totally dependent upon Him, the life-giving Christ. Wrapping this up as best as I can, if any of us has come to Jesus, we came because the Father drew us to Jesus, which none of us deserved. If you never come to God through Jesus, if you grumble and push it away to the end, it's because the Father didn't draw you and it's what we all deserve. Therefore, no injustice is ever done to anyone. Many of us are getting so much better than what we deserve. I pray that there's not a single person under the sound of my voice, now, podcast, or whenever, that gets what they deserve. I pray they do not resist. I pray they simply, humbly believe Jesus and get in on it. This is my prayer. I believe that if you're here, it's because the Father is wooing you to himself. Here's a big truth for you, okay? This is liberating to me. When a person comes to Jesus honestly, earnestly, genuinely, seeking to know the truth, that person will know the truth. God will reveal it to them. He will not turn them away. If you're outside of Christ, if you're lost today, you do not believe, do you sense at all God drawing you? May today be the day that you believe in Jesus. Today. See Him as Jesus. See Him as the Christ, the Messiah. The one who came to redeem and give hope, not just a meal. For eternity. See him as hope. Exit the darkness of unbelief and enter the satisfaction of being in Christ, in the light. This is hope. Stop grumbling and start praying that God would open your heart. I think that's why the point was there. I think that's why Christ said, stop grumbling. God's in control. So that they would stop the grumbling and say, oh God, work on my behalf. We think that our reasonings and our thoughts are so lofty and so mighty. We're so dangerous with a sophomore philosophy degree. We try to reason everything. Unless it fits up here, we can't believe it. 
These words of Jesus should shake us to our core. Our wills are not competent in spiritual things. We're dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Jacob read 1 through 5 this morning. We're all dead. Simply robotic followers of Satan and the evil one, the prince of the power of this air. Children of wrath, separated, alienated, wretched, dirty. This is who we all are. But God, here comes Jesus to save your day, to save your eternity. Would you trust him? May this truth shake you. God is sufficient. Our wills are absolutely insufficient. Sovereign grace is powerful. Our wills are pitiful. Trust in his grace, not in your performance. Trust in his grace, not in your free will. Christian, Jesus loves you. He died. He lived for you perfectly, a perfect life for you. He died for you willingly. Upon the cross where he was made sin on your behalf so that you could have life. He lived the life for you as your representative. He died the death you deserve as your substitute there on the cross. Bearing the punishment that was supposed to go towards you. But he took it instead. What a beautiful substitution. And then he beat death for you most powerfully at the resurrection. It's what we celebrate at Easter. This is absolute epic encouragement. Do you see, Christian, how you are loved? Do you see how you are cherished? These truths should humble us. Were it not for him, I'd be lost. That's why I love to sing, Oh to grace, how great a debtor. He loves me. He saved me. I have so much to be thankful for. These truths should fill you with thankfulness. Everything we have is from Jesus. Were it not for Jesus. You see, we're so desperate. I'm so thankful, absolutely thrilled to the core of who I am, that he saved me. I don't remember how it all happened. I don't remember when it happened. I just know that I'm his. And he tells me so. As I read scripture, I feel myself being the recipient of the things that he says are for his children. I know they're for me. I believe him. What he did on the cross was for me. And it's one of the few times in life where I feel love. When I consider Jesus. I know he loves me. I'm so thankful that he continues to keep me and forgive me. Every day I wake up, I'm a Christian. It's wonderful. And it's all because of his love and his grace. It's not because I'm getting up choosing to be a Christian. I sin. I sin. I sin. And he loves me. And he wakes me up and says, you're mine today. You don't have to go do those things. You're a new person. This is who you are. And I wake up a Christian. I woke up a Christian today. I mean, I tried rebelling. Big time. I try every day to rebel. But he does this funky thing in my heart that makes me feel sick at my sin. It leads me to repentance. I don't try to choose to feel weird about doing something. I go after it because I want to. And then something weird happens. Or what I wanted to go after, it makes me sick afterwards. And I'm like, man, this isn't right. 
It's the Holy Spirit working in me. He, I don't desire that. He does it in me for me, for his glory. So that I could be fulfilled in him and not those wonderings. This is grace. This is active grace. This isn't because I'm continually trying my best. It's because he won't let me. As best as I try to leave him, he won't let me. This is who Jesus is. These truths give me magnificent hope that for those who are furthest away from God, they can be saved. The dirtiest sinner. I can have faith in God that that relative who's dying of stomach cancer, the agnostic who hates me in my church, my neighbors who hate that I'm their neighbor, whoever it may be that you think are so far away, these truths tell me that no matter how much they resist, if God wants them, He's going to get them. This is encouraging. So I love them and I pray to God for their soul. Say, God, intervene. Save them. You took Paul way back in the day when he was killing Christians, murdering Christians, and you made him a Christian. And he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. And I'm concerned about an agnostic who just doesn't like me. They're not burning Christians at the stake in their backyard. They just don't like them. And if you can save Paul, pray to God for that family member who's dying of that awful disease, who's bitter, old, angry, and ask God to save them. God can save the toughest sinner, not because it's dependent upon the sinner, but because God is in control. These truths make all the glory go to God, not to us, but to your name, O Lord. If this is tough for you, If today's sermon was just like trying to eat nails for lunch. Keep praying. Keep reading. Investigate. Study. I would encourage you not to listen to blah, 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 blah. Just go here. Just read. From Genesis to Revelation. And I know you'll walk away with one big idea. I'm glad God's in control. Just read it from cover to cover. I don't think anyone who has honestly, earnestly, humbly, without another agenda, just read scripture, Genesis, Revelation, walks away saying, boy, I'm glad I can tell God what to do. That's what that tells me. No. You walk away saying, man, that Jesus and Holy Spirit and Father God is awesome. I want them. I think that's what you walk away saying. We shouldn't look at this and say, how could God not save everyone? That's not the point. We should be humbled and thankful and say, how could God ever save anyone? Especially one like me. How does that happen? How does he love me? We should not be in awe that there's some who aren't in heaven. Those secret things are not for us. We should just be in absolute awe and maybe even confusion on how God could even let one person in heaven. That makes 
no sense to me. None. If it makes sense to you, you're not aware of his holiness and you're not aware of your sin. If you're aware of your sin and you're aware of how perfect and holy he is, it doesn't make sense that anyone should be there except him. Please find your satisfaction in Christ and give God the glory for it all. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, for those who have tasted your grace and who love you and serve you and live for you, would they just be encouraged at even more grace being received day by day, your mercies being new every morning? Would they just feel a giant safe arm come around them today and just hear you speak to their soul? I told you I love you. I told you I'm with you. There's nothing that's ever going to happen to you that's not for your ultimate good. Trust me. Would we feel that?